0: This is Locking Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we questioned the veracity of the so called cybersecurity skills gap. Every year, according to numerous reports, the global economy lacks anywhere between millions and a bajillion cybersecurity professionals. For instance, by 2021, We're supposed to be down some 3.5 million cybersecurity professionals. And somehow, today, we're already down some 4 million cybersecurity professionals. Companies often point fingers at the candidates, believing that if they can't find the talent, the talent doesn't exist. But the cybersecurity skills gap is more complicated. It turns out, sometimes, the talent doesn't want what a company has to offer. For example, a prohibition on remote work during the pandemic? Nope. Non-competitive pay? Pfft. And a real repellent for talent? Literally impossible job requirements. Job listings often call for multiple degrees from universities, a laundry list of certifications, and years of experience, but offer entry-level starting salaries. It's going to be a little hard to find a cybersecurity professional with 10 years of experience in a language when the language itself is only five years old. We also delved into the world of missing person scams online. These scams, which masquerade as requests for help in finding a missing family member, partner, or loved one, can slide into a dark world of manipulation, lies, and theft. For starters, A post asking to find a missing girlfriend may be written by a domestic abuser. Further, some posts may be outright scams, borrowing images of perfectly safe children, fooling readers into donating money to a fraudulent account. Finally, scammers can manipulate victims whose family members are actually missing, offering limited information and giving them false hope of seeing their loved ones again. It happened in 2016 when scammers lie to a family saying their missing daughter was now a sex worker in Atlanta. The scammers said they could see their daughter again, but only if they paid $70,000. These are vile scams, and our defenses are limited. Verify the person sharing the missing person request is genuine, and dig around online to find any official law enforcement statements to validate the claims. There is nothing funny about this. Be careful out there. And finally, some hopeful news. Last month, Mauerbytes asked its newsletter subscribers a simple question. Have you ever used an app to monitor your partner's phone? Y'all passed the test. Out of more than 4,500 responses, 98% said no. And of the remaining respondents who said they have used these types of apps, many explained situations of joint consensual tracking, like tracking each other's locations when going for a run or getting held up at work. However, despite the strong showing Our survey should not confuse anyone into thinking this type of behavior is rare. In fact, a survey from Norton LifeLock recently showed that 46% of respondents admitted to quote, stalking an ex or current partner by quote, checking in on them without their knowledge or consent. And 21% admitted to looking through a partner's search history without permission. Why the split in conclusions then? Well, There might be acceptance of online stalking that is described as just checking in. But, like we said on labs, replacing one word for another doesn't excuse the behavior beneath it. Just swap the word phone for diary. How many folks would comfortably admit, Yeah, sure, I'm just checking in on my wife's diary. In cybersecurity news across the world... Bleeping Computer reported that several U.S. government agencies warned the public about a North Korean hacking group attempting to steal millions from international banks. The serious threat is perhaps undercut by the hacking group's nickname, Beagle Boys, with a Z. I bet they all have frosted tips and matching white linen shirts, too. ZDNet told readers about Swiss academics who learned how to bypass PIN codes required in contactless visa payments. The attack could grant hackers the option to buy items that far exceed the contactless payment spending limit, without even needing to input the associated PIN code. In entirely unrelated news, the Swiss academic team secured grant funding overnight. PublicTechnology.net spoke with Maria Rosaria Tadeo, Senior Research Fellow and Deputy Director of the Digital Ethics Lab at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, about cyber war. Tadeo said that because the current legal framework fits poorly onto cyber war, it is difficult to determine whether a cyber attack breaks any current treaties or conventions. This Enormous gray area likely means that, unfortunately, all is fair in love and cyber war. Security Affairs reported that researchers at Bitdefender found a hacker-for-hire group targeting companies with malware that is sneakily embedded into plugins for a popular 3D animation and modeling software. If the next Toy Story movie features Woody going on a coke bender, you now know why. Finally, Beta News warned readers that the 2008-era Trojan Qbot has evolved. What started as a banking and credential theft malware can now insert itself into legitimate email threads by taking advantage of an infected user's Microsoft Outlook email client. So, if your boss starts spouting nonsense halfway through an email conversation, I say, take your chances. Ignore it. Our main story today concerns security hubris, the simple yet difficult-to-measure phenomenon in which businesses and the people inside them are less secure than they actually believe. It's actually somewhat intuitive. Ask yourself right now, on a scale from 1 to 10, how cyber-secure are you, particularly during the coronavirus pandemic in which so many of us are working from home? Again, How cybersecure are you? Now, before we go over your answer, ask yourself some other questions. Do you have any reused passwords for your online accounts? For the personal network you connect to at home, does your home router still have its default password? If your business rolled out new software for you to use at home, video conferencing, online messaging, do you know if those software platforms are secure? Do you know how to prevent Zoom bombing? Do you have a VPN to connect to business resources? If, by now, your original answer is looking a little shaky, don't be surprised. That is security hubris. Thinking you are more secure than you actually are. But one of the biggest problems of security hubris for a business is that a business that thinks it's secure won't spend the time and money to actually be secure. And that's the kind of structure that can lead to a breach. To better understand security hubris, how businesses can identify it, what they can do to protect against it, and how we potentially tracked it in our most recent report, Enduring from Home, COVID-19's Impact on Business Security, we're talking today to Adam Kajawa, Security Evangelist and Director for Malwarebytes Labs. Adam, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks so much, David. I am glad to be
0: here. Let's start pretty broadly here, right? What is security hubris? In some more detail.
1: Sure. Well, as as you had mentioned, it's it's the overall kind of idea that you are more secure than you actually are. And we usually like to break this down, or, or at least I've you know talked about this threat before as it being like, let's say your your border defenses are top notch. You know, you bought the best fire, while you have the best pen testers making sure that they can't get into your outside network or through your border defenses or whatever. And so with all that security that you invested into border protections, into preventing attackers from getting into your network in the first place, you feel that maybe you don't need to splurge or take the time and investment into rolling out security for individual endpoints or to do regular audits of potential internal vulnerabilities or be concerned about insider threats, things like that, because the the overall, you know, there's been a lot of investment in security. It's pointed in a singular direction, which seems initially anyway, like the best way to protect a network. And by by kind of having that overconfidence in one aspect of the solution, you fail to fully deploy protections in different routes that attackers may take to invade networks. So that's kind of the overall concept of security hubris.
0: Yeah. And to make it clear here as well, something that seems kind of pernicious and kind of difficult to prepare for, even for those who know about it, is like you said, it's not just this broad, oh, I am am cyber secure, but it's it's even, you know, folks who have taken the right steps, but the right steps might be in like you said only one direction. Am I getting mm-hmm. that right? Yes. So, what are the potential risks or harms for a business that, you know, is engaging in these steps and and doesn't recognize its own security hubris?
1: Well, I mean, the biggest concerns are that there are attacks happening right now that they're not aware of that a massive attack could be or could have already happened. I mean, with a lot of the, the malware we see today, especially attacking business customers, there's a lot of dwell time, you know? So like TrickBot, actually recently there was an article done talking about how TrickBot had about a two-week dwell time period where it spent that two weeks gathering information, being able to gain additional access and persistence on network endpoints, and then finally two weeks after its initial infection, it decided to launch ransomware against all the endpoints it infected. So someone who's looking in a singular direction isn't expecting that attack from behind to happen. And when it does, it's unexpected. Like we try to tell folks that you need more than just security on your endpoints. You need to also have a plan. You need to make sure that your organization is, is robust and resilient to any sort of cyber attack. Now, that that obviously could, you know, in one way you could think of it as, yes, continue to purchase security solutions and deploy them like crazy. But another good thing to attach to that is, is just, like I said, having a plan, having some kind of, of document or previously discussed and agreed upon set of instructions when encountering a certain threat. So if this organization has not even secured their endpoints because they're not concerned about attacks coming from that direction, then they're probably not also going to have a what do we do now that the attack has occurred, which could slow down recovery process and, and could really make the, the actual attack that does succeed far more powerful and far more dangerous.
0: So... Just to cover again, though, you're saying that buying Malwarebytes and all of Malwarebytes'
1: competitors is not a good plan? Maybe not at the same time. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, yeah your, your vendor, obviously, of choice should work into your security plan. You know, if you do have a security tool, are you running regular scans, manual scans on endpoints or automatic scans on endpoints? You know, what, what are you using that incorporates that security tool? Into your actual recovery and security plan. But, you know, like I said, we're not even, these people aren't even worried about that yet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. Are there real life examples that that we know of that we've seen this for and that we can point to? Or is it kind of more broadly that almost every breach is sort of an instance of security hubris? I'm trying to see, you know, do we have real life examples of, yep, that's it, that's it, we saw it. That security hubris and that led to a harm.
1: Yeah. Well, you can look at it from a lot of different ways. You're right. A lot of breaches could be considered some form of security hubris. It really kind of depends on whose viewpoint we're looking at. You know, if we're talking about an individual employee who ends up opening up a phishing email and, you know, launching malware, their expectation is my IT security team's got this. You know, it doesn't really matter what I do, they'll protect me, right? The security team obviously having a different viewpoint themselves. But yeah, that that, that kind of security hubris uh, comes into play all the time. I'm also thinking of, of even bigger things, a, a big profile thing, WannaCry, for example. Mm-hmm. I know everybody knows WannaCry, so this should be easy to understand. But WannaCry was a ransom worm that utilized specific exploits or vulnerabilities against a certain version of the SMB protocol for many versions of Windows, and back in 2017 was spread across most of the world very, very quickly, utilizing an exploit for this thing, an exploit which also had been patched a few months prior. We still see WannaCry. We still see massive amounts of WannaCry detections. Why is this? Wasn't there a kill switch? Wasn't this all stopped years ago? The reality is, is that there are still so many endpoints out there, servers, devices, things like that running all over the world which still have these vulnerabilities in them. Their SMB versions are old, they're outdated, they haven't patched. So these systems are now being, are either automatically compromised by cyber criminals or by WannaCry just looking for new targets or something like that. Now, most of the WannaCry we've seen is kind of neutered at this point, but the exploit nonetheless works. And so if it works for this this ransomware that's just randomly searching the internet for vulnerabilities, then we've also seen cyber criminals do the same thing with this exploit and they've deployed everything from bitcoin miners to actually compromising the servers as a staging site for Mm. other malware attacks so in a way like to even step further into this security hubris could not only just hurt your organization but help your organization hurt a different one yeah in this case because it
0: sounds like from, from exactly what you said here that Cybercriminals know that this is an exploit, right? This is a known exploit. And mm-hmm. they're using that in not just a direct attack, but a sort of multi-chain attack in which they take advantage of your systems to hurt someone else.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, I look at a, a lot of WordPress sites that are just rolled out by individuals that aren't configured correctly, that may have vulnerabilities. And then oftentimes they're utilized by cyber criminals who are able to break through very weak security on these servers and then use them to host malicious files or malicious scripts, which then get downloaded by those like office documents that, you know, we worry about emotech spreading in and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And that's where they, they kind of get that stuff. So, I mean, that is that is one route. But what really is important here is why are these things still vulnerable? There's been a patch for years now and it comes down to what the priorities of the people maintaining the systems are. Do they care that this thing's vulnerable? Does the system still work the purpose they need it for are they worried about it at all or have they just completely given up it's all these things combined that kind of make it fall into the security hubris bucket in that in this case maybe it's not we think we're secure enough maybe it's we don't care if we're secure enough you know we're not too concerned about it
0: let's talk about some of the data that we at Mauerbytes actually recently found, right? Mm -hmm. We had our Enduring from Home COVID-19's Impact on Business Security Report, which came out just in mid-August. And for that report, we recently surveyed more than 200 IT and cybersecurity professionals, all at least at the manager level. And we looked at the impacts, right, like we said, of what COVID-19 has had on businesses in terms of working from home. And one of the things that we were potentially able to spot here is some moments of security hubris. I was wondering, could you lead us through some of that data to see how do you even find this within data?
1: (laughs) You know, the thing that honestly stood out the most to me about seeing security hubris in this data was when we asked them how secure they were, right? And they said, we're eight out of 10, we're seven out of 10 as far as security goes. And I think I calculated it up to be like 56% did say, that it was eight or above. So their security yeah, wow. was either eight or above and they're completely good to go. But then when we asked not just about the breaches, you know, did, because people did get hit, like 20% of our respondents got hit mm-hmm. by a breach after COVID started. It was also like the individual answers of what are you doing to secure things? Are you providing education to your employees? Are you providing them with secure tools? Are you providing them with secure systems, et cetera, et cetera? And then we started seeing fewer and fewer respondents like say, yeah, we're doing this. Yeah, we're doing that. And I'm like, all right, so you're so confident in your security. It's doing so well, Mm -hmm. but you're not doing any of these things to make it secure. So (laughs) what?
0: (laughs) I was going through it and you were spot on with it, right? We, we asked folks, how prepared were they to transition to working from home? And and yeah, we asked them to rank from one to 10 and 73% of respondents said that they were at least a seven out of 10. And then curiously, at like the same time, 35% of respondents said that their security posture was better now than it was in the office. But looking at these individual things, you know, what did they roll out? What did they do? Did they, did they do a cybersecurity and online privacy analysis of their new tools? And not a majority said yes. No, you know, no. it just didn't happen. Uh, you know, did they roll out VPNs to connect to business resources at the same level? And no, no, they did not. And then, like you said, nearly 20% of respondents who said that they were hit with a security breach because of a now remote worker like that mm-hmm. that is a thing we measured and so knowing all of this right we know that working from home right it creates opportunities for for more devices for more personal networks for more applications being rolled out and isn't that you know in in itself a a riskier environment than being in the office
1: yeah you would assume <laughs> yeah yeah i think you know at this point we're going to have to to think about well an individual if we're talking to IT leaders here, our respondents are IT leaders, and so I know plenty of IT guys, and I know plenty of IT guys that just love to beef out their home security like it's Fort Knox. So in those cases, I can see someone being like, "Yes, I am more secure now because mm-hmm. I I live underground in a <laughs> bunker, and you know I use NASA satellites to, to route my traffic <laughs> through space." <Yeah. laughs> but for the most part, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see how people can actually say they're more secure. And there may be an idea that that because folks are distributed, because, you know, remote workers are no longer located in a single physical space, that, that they are somehow decentralized and therefore harder to gain access to by cyber criminals. But the reality is that that's, you know, that's complete baloney. Just like the idea that being distributed makes you less vulnerable to certain attacks. But with with things like social media, with things like social engineering that we still see and with less sources of guidance and protection for employees. And what I mean by that is that if, if I'm in the office and I see a weird prompt come up on my on my computer, I just walk down to the IT guys or, or whatever, mm-hmm. whoever is you know, local. Hey, what's going on here? Can you fix this? Versus at home. When I would have to put in a ticket, I have to call someone, I have to do this and that and the other thing in order to find out what's going on with my system, I may just say, you know what? I got work to do, man. I need to finish this. So ignore this thing for now, whatever it is. I
0: have worked at offices that have only remote IT force, you know, only remote (laughs) IT and cybersecurity individuals. And I've worked at offices with people who are downstairs. That's that's Malwarebytes, right? And I can tell Mm -hmm. you, you know, anecdotally, I personally feel so much more cyber secure at Malwarebytes because I can go downstairs. you know. Whereas mm-hmm. when I was working at one of the many newspapers I used to work at, I would have to call a line that would get patched to New York. I was working in San Francisco mm-hmm. and I didn't know if someone would pick up. Like it was that simple, and also I was on deadline every single day, right That's the mm-hmm. newspaper business and so if something's kind of bugging me, but it isn't stopping me from writing and filing a story, that's going to get shelved you know and that's that's the nature of the business because i can't I can't go to someone and tap on their shoulder and be like, "Hey, you know, can I get a temperature check? Can I get a gut check? Is this a thing yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and and that's that's dangerous I also wanted to look at this and be pretty clear here, right, that these instances of potential security hubris, right, they're not malicious. They're not people who are trying to say better things or worse things about their company. It's these individuals who are supposed to guard an employee workforce, supposed to guard a company's resources, and they're good at it. They're they're Mm -hmm. good at what they do. But sometimes the pieces just don't add up. And like we were saying, you know, moving to, to a remote workforce, moving to a distributed workforce, look, there are, there are opportunities for attack. And mm-hmm. not being able to piece those things together, it's just a, a simple blip. And so I think one of the most difficult things here, right, about securing an organization against these harms is that the harm itself is hard to spot. So what can a business do to recognize that it even has security hubris inside?
1: I guess the the most productive advice on this one would be to just always assume that it exists, <laughs> and and that, and that cyber criminals will find lots of different ways to to breach you know your network, and, and they're not just using the same old stuff we've seen them use in the past. Through the first half of the year, we started seeing you know much more use of of rats, of spyware, of, of tools that were being used. To gather information about what people what kind of applications people were using, what kind of accesses they had, you know working remote and everything after the pandemic started and and so the bad guys have already changed their tactics to match the new environment we're dealing with to become more effective to to be able to access maybe some corporate resources from remote employees' systems. And so, you know, thinking of that, they're not going to just stick to the same playbook for years at a time and say, we're only going to attack a network by going after their border defenses or we're only going to attack a network by going after vulnerable ports. There are so many different ways to break into networks and to break into an endpoint and to fool endpoint users that it's almost an unlimited, you could spend all day long thinking about security and how to break it and how to secure it. And the next day you can come back and do it all over again because it literally feels like that sometimes. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, if, if an organization wants to be mindful of security hubris, the first thing I highly recommend is think about, A, all the different ways someone could get into your network. Think about where are your endpoints located? What kind of services are they running? Do you have any outward facing applications or services or ports or anything that's under your control that could potentially be used as a bridge or a springboard into a corporate network? Second thing, inventory all of your data. Where is your data? How easy is it you know, accessible? If we're talking about ransomware, if we're talking about corporate espionage or, or any sort of attempt to steal intellectual property, then your data is going to be incredibly important to protect. You need to be able to know where it is, how easily accessible it is, who has access to it to l- properly lock down those avenues of access to that data. So that's kind of the first thing you need to do. Make sure you, you realize security hubris is the thing. a thing. Attacks could come from these different directions. Now, what are you going to do to try and patch those directions? And even after you've done that, even if you spend an entire week just identifying potential avenues of infection, rolling out some kind of solution for that particular avenue, you still shouldn't say, you know what, I'm done. I can actually quit. You know, this This organization is completely secure. My life purpose has been met. You have to continue to say, all right, well, tomorrow will there be something new? Are we rolling out a new application? Is that going to enter, introduce a vulnerability where we, you know, management says they want to be able to access internal administrative tools remotely? Well, that's going to be, you know, a lot of different things that you have to to consider, not just setting up how that could happen, but also securing that particular port, of entry for those employees or for anyone who might else try to get in. So it's really just kind of having a 360 view of of your security posture, of the possible avenues of entry into your network and making sure that those are all protected as much as possible. The bad guys will always likely come up with stuff we didn't think of, just like we come up with stuff they didn't think of <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> just how we're able to stop them so often. And and just keeping that in mind and having kind of a healthy understanding of it will help you avoid security hubris actually affecting your security's organization or your organization's security.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to revisit what you said here about, look, this is not a static threat. You know, threat actors are not trying the same door, right, over and over. Mm -hmm. And if the door gets barricaded or to extend the metaphor beyond its use you know you put a bunch of locks on it all this stuff they're not just going to keep trying that they're going to find something different and Mm -hmm. that's something that we actually did measure as well in the enduring from home report right we we saw that older forms of malware started to rise in use and in detections um Mm -hmm. things that we hadn't that we thought had maybe cooled off for a little bit and they were now getting used through lo and behold no big surprise here coronavirus misinformation lores. Can you talk about sort of what we saw there?
1: Yeah, yeah. And we're still seeing it. It's, it doesn't <laughs> stop. Even, even big name cybercrime groups like Emotet are using COVID-themed attacks these days. This isn't unique to the pandemic. You know, this isn't unique to COVID-19. When there was the Boston bombing many years ago, when the Syrian rebels were fighting and everyone was talking about that, big news, especially disasters, are always or often co-opted by cybercriminals as a method of infection because they have that kind of emotional connection to them where a user sees something and and the email might say, let's talk about the Boston bombing one. We have unique pictures or or one-of-a-kind pictures of the event or something like that. Click here to see them. Now, that really just kind of caters to the most disgusting part of our brains. But it happens, and they know that it works. And they know that clickbaity kind of stuff is, is good for, well, not good for. It's good for them. It's bad it's good for, for us. Them. right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and with the COVID stuff, except like we didn't see a lot of stuff that went around saying, "Find out, click here to find out why COVID's fake," or "This is what they're not telling you about COVID." We didn't see that kind of stuff. What we saw instead. And that's kind of interesting, honestly. That, that's that's rare form, in my opinion. What we usually saw were invoices, people saying, "Hey, we've got PPE. Please, you know, check out this order form," or requesting mm-hmm. something, or you know, talking about sharing information. That's another one we saw a lot. Like, I know there was one out there that said, "Here's a newsletter attached to the email, which is actually malicious that gives you tips on how to stay safe from COVID." We saw one from claiming to be from UNICEF, the children's charity that said, you know, here's some information about COVID-19, protect the children, you know? <laughs> wow, yeah. So stuff like that, where it almost seemed helpful, <laughs> except that the information was baloney and the it all this was used to infect you.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing some that were preying on somewhat the opposite of the ugliest parts of who we are, but Mm -hmm. sometimes trying to prey on on the good parts. And it was things saying, hey, donate to this group of hospitals, you know, use this link and, you know, input your credit card information. And that gets to a good part of us. Like, hey, I want to help this effort. I want to fund research. I want to fund the race to a vaccine, you know? And lo and behold, look, that that was also successful. Look Uh, what you
1: get for trying to be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Right,
0: right. Which definitely goes to show, again, to, to sort of re-emphasize this point, right? Again, this is not a static threat. The individuals, the threat actors who are pushing this stuff out, they're not even just pushing out one malware. It's not even just that that, that is dynamic. It's that their tactics, their emails, their words are di- yeah. are dynamic. They change a lot. And so I wanted to go back again to what you were saying about for organizations that want to protect against this we had a couple of steps already right here right one always assume just just always assume that security hubris is happening inside and two you know once you're working to protect against it do a data inventory find out all the ways your data can be accessed find out all the ways that it's you know moving from one platform to the other if that's happening mm-hmm. how it's networked are there other things that companies and businesses can do, again, to protect against this everyday threat?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, rolling out security solutions on endpoints and things like that is, is smart. These threats that we were talking about, the older ones, those have all been detected. Like, you you can detect those with almost anything. You throw them into a virus total engine, it'll probably come back, you know, 99 out of 100 or something. Mm-hmm. Because they're old and they're loud, and really, they depend on... They count on the end user not having the protection to detect them at the end of the day, but other than that, I mean there 's lots and lots of information going around right now about these threats. you know security researchers have nothing better to do <laughs> than look for threats yes. um, so I, I think I think it's really important to keep abreast of the news honestly if you 've <laughs> got security feeds, if you 've got not just what people write about but some organizations have access to threat feeds from their vendors that they use or for third parties or something like that regardless of what you do if you're if you're someone who's in charge of the security of an organization you need to make sure that you know what threats are out there and i think that's going to go a long way also to helping to create a better environment that's more resilient to attacks if you understand what the main major, major threats are you know what's going on hopefully folks that are listening to this right now or ones that already do that but I think it's incredibly important because these attacks are getting more sophisticated. Like you said, the emails they use, the, the way in which they send them, the kind of malware that they decide to distribute, this all changes constantly. I have to keep up with it constantly to know what's going on from a day-to-day basis. I could go to bed thinking the world's fine, wake up and see it's on fire, and then have to spend the first you know couple hours of my day understanding why it's on fire and reacting to that. And it may be about something that I never expected to happen, you know?
0: Yeah. So we've got assume that it's there, do a data inventory, and stay aware of the news. Those are good, I think, actionable steps for any business. And like you said, they can, they can help protect against this. They can help recognize this. Because as, as we kind of went through this, right? if you ask a company, if you ask any individual how cyber secure are you that's not going to actually reveal how cyber secure they are
1: (laughs) no no it's gonna it's gonna have the opposite it's gonna probably provide an ego boost to your it admin you know oh everyone loves it nobody's gotten breached so (laughs) (laughs) we're good to go (laughs) yeah exactly we're fine we're fine (laughs) you want a great job there buddy
0: (laughs) but yeah unfortunately it is not the truth adam i wanted to just thank you again for being on our show today
1: Yeah, thank you so much, David. I'm really happy to talk to you about this.
0: To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Peter Arntz about Google Chrome extensions. How do they work? When can you trust them? And how can you know you're getting what you want?